you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be speaking today on what I've titled The Danger of Anger and the Urgency of Reconciliation. The Danger of Anger and the Urgency of Reconciliation. Those are actually my two points as well. Uh, but that's what we need to be thinking about as we come to this text here in Matthew chapter 5. And as we do, it's a very fitting song that we just sang uh, in reference to, you know, we have forgiveness at the cross. As I've been thinking over this for a while now and things, you know, really trying to put it together over this past week, this has been a very challenging study for me. It's been, a, it's been convicting uh, because, you know, Mark set this up last week. I'm going to mention a few things uh, from the previous passage just to kind of get our minds back going. But one of the things that Jesus does, especially in light of the, the Pharisees and their influence, is He goes beneath the surface of our external obedience or disobedience to the law of God and goes after our hearts. And so passages like we're looking at this week on anger and insulting others and next week on, on lust and, and things like that, it, it will make us uncomfortable. Because the Word of God exposes the thoughts and intentions of our heart, as Hebrews chapter 4 says. Um, and so, as we think about the danger of anger and the urgency of reconciliation, let's keep the hope of the cross in mind. Uh, because I think it will become ever more clear just how much we need the cross and how sweet the cross is for our salvation as we have our hearts exposed here. Let's begin reading in verse 17 and we'll read up through verse 26. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said, or heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to Your Word, 
And we pray that You would speak through Your Word, that You would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth that our Lord Jesus is speaking. God, help us grasp its heights and its depths, its glory and the weight of its truth. Lord, may it come upon us, Lord, to change us, to form us into His image. Lord, help us see how this applies to our own lives. And God, I do pray that through this message, uh, Lord, through what we consider from Your Word, that relationships that are fractured would be healed. God, work by the power of Your Spirit to bring restoration and reconciliation Lord, where we have messed up relationships with other people. And we pray that in it all, Jesus would be exalted and North Avenue Church would better reflect Him to one another and to the world around us. And we ask all this in His name. Amen. Again, remember, the Pharisees were experts at external obedience, keeping the letter of the law. We are all bent in some way, though, if we're honest, to wanting to give a good external appearance, even if that's not what's going on inside, in our hearts, in our minds. One of the things that's interesting is we think about how Jesus deals with anger and the issues that He's about to deal with, especially in light of the fact that He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, is it's good for us to actually think, what was the purpose of the commandments? Like, go back to the Ten Commandments. Why did God give Israel ten commandments? I mean, we, we, we know them well. Uh, if you've been raised in church at all, you probably at some point memorized them. Uh, maybe you're unfamiliar with them. But what, what, what is the purpose for why God gave commandments? Because when we, when we understand the purpose for which He gave them, it helps us have a better perspective to understand what Jesus is doing um, here in our passage today. And so you think about the fact that the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why would God say it that way? Why would He have to tell Israel, you shall have no other gods? Because Israel was prone to have other gods. And it, it seems so simple, at least it, it, was, it was like world revolutionizing to me when, when, when I started seeing this, but it seems so simple. Why, why would Jesus say, for instance, honor your father and your mother? Because we're prone to not honor our father and mother. Why would he have to say you shall not murder? Because murder's in our hearts. Why would he say don't commit adultery? Because adultery's in our hearts. Why would he say don't covet? Because coveting is in our hearts. The commandments were intended to reveal the sin that they were restraining. And so we think about this. The law, in a sense, had a threefold function. First, to promote God's standard of righteousness for His people. This is who you should be as my redeemed people. But in showing that standard of righteousness, it shows us our sin and our inability to keep the standard. We break these commandments frequently. Praise God, it doesn't end there. A third function of the law is to point us to the one who both met the standard for us and then bore the penalty, our penalty, for not meeting the standard. That's the good news of the gospel. God's law shows us what we should be. And we see we don't measure up at all. 
And then that very same law shows us the need of the Savior who met the demands of the law in every way. We know this briefly if you want to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Pharisees thought they could earn righteousness and salvation by their law keeping. And it is clear that through the law, you cannot earn what you need in God's sight. None of us can. All it does is show us how sinful we are. But the good news is that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they're pushing us to it. What? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You don't work for righteousness. You receive it by faith. The Pharisees miss that. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3 as well. And so we have to be aware of this tendency in our own hearts and lives to think that merely externally keeping the letter of the law is enough. Because we can be filled with all sorts of lawlessness in here while everybody else might see a great law keeper. And Jesus says it's not enough to look good on the outside. It's not enough to to adhere externally to the letter of the law if your heart is rotten. And that's the purpose of the passage that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus takes up the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And He takes us into the heart of this commandment and into why such a commandment is necessary. And in doing so, He ratchets up the stakes even more on a law that He Himself gave to Israel. Because what does He say? Look again. He says, verse 21 You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And then verse 22, but I say to you. You know, people can want to get really confused here and some try to, you know, pit Jesus against the rest of the Bible and cause confusion amongst Christians. Um, You know, well, well, God said this, but Jesus is saying something different. If we understand who Jesus is, this is just a, a, a tangent point, but it's a very important point. If we understand who Jesus is, he is God. He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, which means that when God on Mount Sinai was giving the law, guess what? That wasn't just the Father. It was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus gave the law to Israel. Okay, He's God. He wasn't somehow separate from that. He was God who gave that law to Israel. The whole Trinity was involved in giving the law. So that when Jesus says, but I say to you, He's not speaking in opposition to what he's already said. He's giving us the true interpretation of it. He's saying this is what it's really about. And so we do well to pay very close attention to what Jesus says. Let's look again at verse 21. It says, You have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And this is the first main section of this message today, the danger of anger. But he starts off talking about murder. Where does anger come in? We'll see that. But what is murder? To murder someone is to unlawfully kill another human being and to do so with a premeditated malice. Um, According to Genesis 9, after the flood, murder is to be punished by the death penalty. It's a capital crime. It deserves capital punishment. 
And Israel, if you murdered someone, you were to be put to death in response. Not every sin or violation of the law brought a penalty as severe as this. But this is something that transcends just Israel. This is for all human societies of all time. If you commit murder, you are liable to judgment. Your life is forfeit. It's the foundation, one of the key foundations of a civilized society. And it is important to to make sure we stress murder here and not just killing in general. Why? Because there there are means by which people are killed that aren't seen as murder. There's at least, generally speaking, three ways that killing is not a crime. I mean, you think about this. This is important to make this distinction. Killing in war. You're a soldier fighting for your country. You're not committing murder when you serve your country. Self-defense. Someone breaks into your home, tries to hurt you or your family. You fight back, they die. That's not a crime. That's not murder. It's not premeditated malice. And thirdly, obviously, when the government punishes the severest of crimes and puts people to death. So generally speaking, those are at least three ways that killing is not murder. Murder, again, is unlawfully killing another human being and doing so with a premeditated malice. And remember now, the Pharisees knew this. They knew this law. They knew it very well. The Pharisees embodied a mindset that said one was obedient to God's law if they just kept it strictly to the letter. And while they may never have actually ended someone's life, the Pharisees, they certainly harbored anger and hatred in their hearts towards others, even wishing death upon them um, and likely treating those people as worthy of death. And they thought that was perfectly acceptable in God's sight because, hey, I never actually killed them. I could wish them dead. I could hate them, be indignant at them, despise them, and degrade them in every way that I could, but never actually killed them, so God's pleased with me. This is why, if you want to write this reference down in Matthew 23, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so the Pharisees, again, would keep this to the letter of the law while their hearts were rotten like dead men's bones. But let's read on because Jesus, this is where Jesus really starts to go beneath the surface and expose not just the Pharisees, but us as well with our tendency to rest in our external obedience. He says this, verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults or says raka to his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable 
to the hell of fire. To be angry here is to be strongly displeased with someone. Uh, and this displeasure is often marked by um, a sense of indignation, a sense of wrath um, at this person, whether or not it's deserved. It's the same word by which the New Testament translates the wrath of God. So it's not just like a, a mild anger. This is a very intense indignation and wrath at another person. And the focus here. The emphasis is on the emotional aspect of this. Okay, the emotional aspect that we feel in our hearts. I mean, you know how it goes. How dare he? How dare she? You know, and, and you, you might have heard somebody say this. I could kill you for that. Where does that come from? Jesus says that we are just as liable to judgment for that kind of anger as if we actually took someone's life. Stop and think about that for a minute. We are just as liable to judgment for that kind of anger than if we actually took someone's life. Now, we know there, are, there is such a thing as righteous anger. And righteous anger is rightly aimed at real injustice, real evil. But even then, we're not free to dispense justice however we wish. There are guidelines and there are strictures that keep us from trying to stand in the place of God. But Jesus isn't primarily dealing with righteous indignation, but with anger and indignation that has no valid basis. That's why some translations say angry without cause. This is an anger and an indignation that arises because we think maybe somehow we've been offended by another person. Something they said, something they did. If we really want to be honest, sometimes it's just because of who they are. And we just plain don't like them. Certain people and certain types of people tend to provoke us into this kind of indignation. And we're angry that we have to be around them. We're angry that we have to work with them. That we have to put up with them. We're angry that we have to serve them for their good. When everything in us says, no, I want, to, I want you to receive the opposite of good. In our mind, we would rather them not exist or at least be kicked to the curb, treated as refuse. And Jesus says, if you feel this toward another human being, especially a fellow believer, you're liable to judgment as if you had murdered them. And that's why I say that this was not comfortable to prepare for. Um... Because we, we've all had this. And if we say we haven't, we're telling a lie. We have all experienced this in one way or another at some time. Jesus doesn't stop there though. He takes it even further. What's the next thing He says? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And again, to insult is to say raka. Well, that's just a fun word to say. It doesn't mean anything to us in English. But what it actually does mean is this. It's a severe term of verbal abuse. A term that when used, it's intended to degrade someone, to tear them down, to intentionally, to deeply wound them in such a way that they never forget it. And they know that you're the one who did it. 
The word literally in modern equivalents could be stupid, idiot, empty-headed. It calls into question someone's intelligence or mental capacity. You incompetent, incapable, stupid, dumb idiot is how we would say this. Now, in pleasant company, we won't admit that we'd say that. Sometimes we might under our breath or in our hearts and our minds. And very closely related to that is the next phrase, you fool. The Greek word for that is the basis for the English word moron. And again, this isn't like playful banter. I mean, you know, you, we joke back and forth. We tease each other sometimes. Um, that's not what Jesus is talking about. This is when we say these things and we wish this upon the person that we're saying them to in order to ruin them and tear them down in some way. And so for anger, for insulting someone's intelligence, for calling your brother a fool, Jesus says you're liable to judgment, to the governing human counsel, and to the hell of fire. That word hell there is the word Gehenna. You've probably heard this before. It's the trash dump outside Jerusalem that was ever burning. It's where they took the refuse. So it was always smoldering. Smoke was always going up. It serves as a metaphor for eternal punishment, eternal uh, suffering, the eternal suffering of the wicked, where Jesus says the, the fire is not quenched and their worm doesn't die. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's ever burning. And Jesus says, making use of that metaphor, if you've been angry in this way, insulted a brother in this way, called your brother a fool, you're liable to that. The ceaseless burning is a very fitting image of eternal punishment. And we need to ask the question, is this overkill on Jesus' part? Is he like making too big of a deal about this? Is he just exaggerating? No. In this instance, Jesus is not exaggerating. He's telling me that I am liable to judgment for being angry with my brother. I am liable to the top human court if I tell my brother that he is an incompetent idiot. I am liable to eternal punishment if I call my brother or my sister even though I may never lay a finger on them. But if I wish it on them, I am liable to hell. And so here's a big question at this point. A big question. With whom are you angry? That's why I said this is not a comfortable message because we have to examine our own hearts in this. With whom are you angry? You probably can think of someone a second question related. Who have you insulted? Who have you called a fool in your heart or maybe even with your mouth? A more penetrating question. Because this gets to the essence of what Jesus is emphasizing. Whom have you regarded with such disdain? With such contempt? with such indignation that in your opinion it would be better for everyone, mostly for yourself, but better for everyone if they just die? According to Jesus, this kind of anger is a bad and damnable enough sin. But then when we actually vent it on someone, it's even worse. 
You know, sometimes we get, a, get around this in various ways, um, making excuses. You know, it's one of the things that, that kind of makes me chuckle sometimes is, depending on where you're from, we have different ways of dealing with our, our anger and our disdain for people. You know, if you're from the South, you've probably heard this, you know, we, we think of talking in our sweet Southern voice, bless your heart. I'll be friendly to your face, but the moment you turn your back, I'm going to put a knife in it. I mean, we know Southern culture is marked by that. We don't say stuff out to your face. We'll be friendly and nice, but behind your back, we tear you to shreds. North, you know, for people from up north, they're more blunt. They just tell you they don't like you. Um, I actually think that's better because it's honest. But either way, we got to be careful. Just whether, whether we hide it or we're just out front with it, it's still anger and it's still an insult and it's still sin and it's still deserving of the judgment of God. No matter what your practice is or what your reflex is, we might not physically harm the person, but we might as well have done so given how we feel about them, how we speak to them and about them. Hear what James says to us in James chapter 3, verses 7 and 10. It says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we what? Bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He's talking to Christians here. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we feel this way in our hearts? Why do we speak this way to people? A little bit further down in James. Mark, I think, quoted this a few weeks ago. Uh, This passage is very revealing. He asked the question, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you what? You murder. You didn't give me what I wanted, so I think I have the right to take your life, or at least wish you dead, or treat you that way. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, literally, you adulteresses. When we let our passions rule us, and especially the way we treat others and speak to them in this harsh way, Jesus says we are in effect cheating on Him. Because we have preferred a worldly attitude to the attitude He calls us to. Matthew chapter 15, back in Matthew, Jesus deals with this in verses 10 through 20. I'll give you a second to turn there. I hear the, the pages flipping. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And so he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? From the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I mean, we've all had that moment where we've said that harsh thing that we, you know, if we were having a better moment, we wouldn't have said. But what do we typically do? I know this is my, my typical response. Well, I didn't mean that. I, I didn't really mean that. Uh, yes, you did. You said what you meant. Because in that moment, you wanted to say it. In that moment, I wanted to say it. I wanted to lash out with my tongue. I wanted to cause hurt. I wanted to cause harm. What you keep inside, it's not going to hide. It's going to come out. We tend to do the things that we do because we want the things that we want. Let's own our sin and take responsibility for it and don't make an excuse, especially here, because so often when our words come out and they are cutting and they are hurting, we say, well, that's not really what I meant. Then you shouldn't have said it. Own it and say, listen, that was awful, terrible, horrible, bad. It was sinful, ungodly. And if I'd thought better about it, I wouldn't have said it. But we did say it. A sobering truth is this, until Jesus returns and until we receive our resurrection body, none of us will know an existence in the body that is totally without sin. None of us will. We will be battling sin every day of our lives and we won't always do so successfully. There is a very real residue of sin in us that we call indwelling sin. And it is in us plotting, planning, waiting, striving to ruin us in our relationships. If we find ourselves in the grip of anger, like Jesus is saying, what are we to do? What am I to do? What are you to do? If we have said something, thought something, nurtured something, like what Jesus is saying, the first thing we need to do is confess it as sin. Call it for what it is. It's not just a bad moment. I didn't just lose my temper. It's not just that I should have thought better. I sinned. Let's call it for what it is. Secondly, repent. Turn from that. Turn from that sin. Obviously, ask God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Change me, Lord. And then once we have confessed and repented, this leads us into our next major point. We need to reconcile with our brother whom we've offended. That's why we say, based on what Jesus says here, and we'll see this, the urgency of reconciliation. It's not something we take lightly. Look again at verses 23 through 26. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last 
penny. Reconcile with your brother whom you have offended. Jesus here gives us two very clear situational examples to guide us when we see the urgency of reconciliation with a brother whom we, or sister whom we have offended. When we have given offense, Jesus says, go make it right. Go pursue making that right as quickly and as urgently as you can. Think about two of these, the two that he gives. The first one, he's telling us to reconcile before we offer our gift of worship, whatever that may be. The second one, reconcile before our opponent enacts legal action against us. Think about the inconvenience of this. Think about the inconvenience of this. Back in this day, there's one temple, there's one city of Jerusalem where you can go and present an offering. And Jesus is telling us, like, listen, if you realize as you're about to offer your gift that somebody, a brother of yours, has an offense against you, put the gift down. Now, most people had to travel a long way to Jerusalem. They had a long way to go to get there. And Jesus is saying, leave the gift Do whatever you have to to get back to that person and make the situation right. Confess your sin. Pursue reconciliation. And once that's happened, then go back and offer your gift. That is a very inconvenient process Jesus just laid out. But that's how serious He wants us to take this. When we have given offense, when we have offended and sinned with our thoughts and even more with our, with our, our words as those thoughts come out to someone and we have hurt them, he says, go make it right. Note also that the assumption here is not that we are the ones sinned against, but that we are the ones who sinned against someone else. That's the assumption here that we need to remember. The responsibility is not on the other person. The responsibility is on me and it's on you. Do not assume. This is something we have to be aware of. We tend to think, because we don't like conflict, that it really must not have been a big deal if the other person hadn't said anything about it. Sometimes that is absolutely not the case. People don't like conflict. It's scary to confront people. It's awkward. It's hard. It can be embarrassing. We don't know what they're going to say. But Jesus doesn't give us an out. He simply says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, go make it right. His point is this, as soon as you're able, pursue reconciliation in terms of the church. It means don't preach. Don't teach that class. Don't put money in the the money box. Don't get up and lead worship. Whatever else it may be, don't give that. If you know, go make it right. I've heard many stories of of pastors who either with a spouse or a child, they had a, a said something cross and they're about to stand up and preach. And they're like, they go to that person who's like, listen, I can't go preach until I know we're okay. And there's a lot of examples we could multiply And if your ministry is not specifically in this building when we gather, if it's something outside, if you know that you have a brother or a sister that you have offended, hold off on going to share the gospel. Hold off on your ministry until you go make it right. The second situation, I think, points us to this. When he talks about 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser. And then it follows this process of going to court, hand it over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and then be put in prison. You won't get out until you pay the last penny. I think what Jesus is telling us through this is simply that the longer we wait to reconcile, the harder and more difficult reconciliation will be. I mean, we know this in our own hearts. If someone has done something to offend us, if they don't say anything, if they don't try to make it right, what do we do? We nurse that. And the longer they go before saying something to us, the more convinced we are they don't care. And then eventually if they do come and say, I don't even care anymore. And what Jesus is saying is when we offend someone, a process, and we know this from our own experience, a process starts of being hurt and being wounded by those words and then starting to form judgments and put up walls and hardening our own hearts toward that person. And I think that's why he's saying quickly, you got to do this quickly because if you don't, you could permanently fracture a relationship or at the very least make it incredibly difficult to heal. The moment we realize we have offended someone, that a friend has now become an adversary, we need to run to make that situation right. The longer we wait, the more time we give to bitterness and resentment. The more time we give for the relationship to be miscolored by that offense. And the fracture deepens and the division widens. Labor diligently for reconciliation. And as we move towards closing, I want to give a word to all of us if we've been sinned against. Because the majority of this isn't exactly what Jesus is dealing with. This is from other places um, in the New Testament. But it is very relevant because the, the stress here is on pursuing reconciliation for offense. But what if you're the one who's been sinned against? There's responsibilities for that person as well. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians chapter 3, which we just studied not too long ago on Thursday night. Listen to this, verses 12 and 13. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And this directly touches our passage. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also think about forgiving. Possibly, maybe forgive if you think they've earned it. Paul says you must. It's an imperative, a command. Flip a few pages to the right in Matthew to chapter 18. Very familiar passage. Look at verses 21 through 22. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And, you know, Peter 
thinks, man, I'm, Jesus is going to be proud of me. I said seven, man, that's more than most people. What does Jesus say in response? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 or 70 times seven. When a brother or sister comes to us having offended us with their words, hurt us with their words, the overwhelming testimony of Christ and the apostles is that we must forgive. Now that doesn't mean that emotions immediately line up. We all know it doesn't happen like that the vast majority of the time. But when we say to someone, I forgive you, we are making a pledge to them, meaning I am not going to hold your sin over your head ever. That's what God does to us when we trust in Jesus, right? He says, I'm not going to hold your sin over you. And let's remember that our sin against God is infinitely greater than anyone's sin against us. No matter what someone does to us, it is incredibly small in comparison to our sin against God. And that's why Paul and Jesus say you must forgive your brother or your sister when they come to you confessing and repenting and seeking reconciliation. And here's the good news. Because forgiveness can be hard sometimes. It can be very hard when we've been hurt. If God has forgiven us, then He is most surely able to empower us and strengthen us to forgive our brother or our sister. This is the glory of Christ. This is the glory of the cross. That in Jesus, when we come to God, we have full, free, forever forgiveness for everyone who confesses their sins and repents. And not just for us, but through that same Savior and through that same cross, we have power to forgive when we have been sinned against. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this very challenging text in Matthew chapter 5. God, it touches on my life in so many ways. And I feel confident to say that it touches on all of us. Lord, I pray that wherever there is a fractured relationship in this room right now or whoever might be listening to the live stream, God, I pray right now that we will take heed to what Jesus has said. That we will realize that such anger and insult and contempt is worthy of hell itself. But that there is forgiveness for us and there is reconciliation to pursue. And so, Lord, I pray that if reconciliation needs to take place in any relationship for anyone in this room, God, that you will give the courage to, to that person to go and pursue it today. However hard, however awkward, however embarrassing it may be, please, God, grant the courage to go pursue that reconciliation. And I pray that we see relationships that have been fractured restored. But God the bottom of all of this, it just shows us how desperately we need Your forgiveness. 
And we know that forgiveness is not something we earn. It's not something we achieve. It's something we receive by simple faith in Jesus, in His life, His death, and His resurrection for us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never called out to Christ for his own forgiveness of sins, I pray, Lord, you would lead that person even now to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.